0: This episode may contain content not suitable for some audiences, including crimes against children, mentions of suicide, descriptions of a graphic nature, and adult language at times. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Many of us have heard about the horrendous United States mass shooting that occurred on the 24th of May in Alvalde, Texas, which left 19 students and two teachers dead. What makes the situation even more tragic is the fact that, this year alone, within just six months, there have been 27 school shootings in the United States. If we put together all incidents from the last four years, the number is one hundred and nineteen. One hundred and nineteen. Of course, the United States is not the only place where shootings happen. In the United Kingdom, the last school shooting was almost as deadly as the one in Texas. It just took place nearly three decades ago. You are listening to True Crime Britain. Join me, Rhiannon, each Wednesday as I tell the solved and unsolved stories of some of the most disturbing, mysterious and heartbreaking crimes committed throughout the United Kingdom. Welcome to this week's episode. In Dunblane Primary School in Stirling, the school day on the 13th of March 1996 had started like any other morning for its 640 pupils. Morning assemblies were held in the school's assembly hall, next to the dining area and the gymnasium, on a rotated schedule due to the limited size of the hall. Afterwards, the year groups dispersed to their respective classrooms, except for Primary 1-13, who, with their teacher, Gwen Mayer, had made their way to the gymnasium. A supervisory assistant, Mary Blake, and physical education teacher, Eileen Harold, were then supposed to relieve Gwen to enable her to attend a meeting. Before doing so, Eileen exchanged a few words with Gwen, but their conversation was interrupted by sudden and terribly loud noises. As the two women turned around, they saw a man entering the gym wearing a dark jacket, black corduroy trousers, and a woolly hat with ear defenders. The teachers and the children barely had time to realize what was happening or see the pistol in the man's hand before he raised the weapon and fired indiscriminately and in rapid succession. Eileen was hit in both forearms, the right hand and the left breast, but she was able to stumble into the open-plan store area, together with Mary and a number of children. Gwen, however, was killed instantly, in addition to one of the students. The shooter continued walking around the gym, firing altogether together over 50 bullets some at point blank range at children who had been thrown to the floor the man then advanced to the south end of the gym again firing randomly in every direction and through a window possibly aiming at an adult who was walking across the playground before opening the fire escape door and stepping outside the doorway. Next, the shooter then fired four shots toward the library cloakroom, striking a staff member, Mrs. Grace Tweddle, on the head. Finally, the killer discharged nine bullets into a mobile classroom where Catherine Gordon had just instructed her primary seven class to get down onto the floor. Most of those shots embedded in books and equipment, with one passing through a chair on which a child had been sitting just a second before. The shooter then returned to the gym, where he drew a revolver, placed the barrel in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. The whole shooting lasted for only three to four minutes, But the results were devastating. Gwen Mayer and fifteen children lay dead in the gym, and one further child was critically injured. The victim sustained a total of fifty-eight gunshot wounds. Only one of the child victims survived long enough to be taken to hospital but in the end had been pronounced dead on arrival. Fifteen others were injured. The first call to authorities was made at 9.41am by the school's headmaster, Ronald Taylor, who had been alerted of the possibility of a gunman on the school premises. Assistant headmistress, Agnes Olson had not yet seen what had happened, but she had heard the screams and noticed what she thought to be cartridges on the ground. After the first call, Ronald ran along the corridor to the gym. On the way, he was told by a teacher he had seen the gunman shooting himself. Ronald burst into the gym and and was met with what he described as, quote, a scene of unimaginable carnage. Some of the children were crying, and some of them were completely motionless. After asking the teacher to comfort the students, Ronald returned to his office and told Deputy Headmistress Fiona Eadington to call for an ambulance. That call was made at 9.43am. The first ambulance arrived at Dunblane Primary School at 9.57am and medical teams from nearby health centres followed shortly after. In addition, over 100 police officers were at the scene that day. By about 11.10am, all of the injured had been taken to Stirling Royal Infirmary. What was left was the heartbreaking task of the families of the slaughtered children to formally identify them and begin their grieving process, trying to understand how someone could have taken their loved ones from them in such a brutal way. That someone, the shooter, was soon identified as 43 year old Thomas Hamilton. As Thomas was no longer alive to answer questions and explain what had driven him to kill 17 people and himself, the authorities dug deeply into his background and character, trying to piece together a possible motive. We will start with Thomas's mother, Agnes Hamilton, who was born in 1931 as an illegitimate daughter of a widowed mother. Having a child in such circumstances back then could have caused a scandal, and so, baby Agnes was given away to relatives, James and Catherine Hamilton, who raised the girl as their own. When Agnes was 19 years old, she met a bus driver named Thomas Watt and fell in love. The couple got married soon after in Bridge Church, Glasgow in 1950 and a couple of years later on the 10th of March 1952 they had a son who was also named Thomas. Unfortunately, Agnes and her husband's marriage did not last and Thomas Sr. ran off with another woman soon after their son's birth. Afterwards, Agnes returned to her adoptive parents who helped to conceal yet another potential scandal. James and Catherine adopted Thomas and Agnes became his older sister. For half of his life, Thomas believed his biological mother was actually his sister. After primary education in Cranhill and Stirling, Thomas attended Riverside Secondary School and eventually Falkirk Technical College. After his graduation in 1968, Thomas became an apprentice draftsman in the county architect's office in Stirling, and eventually opened his own shop in 1972 at 49 Cowain Street, known as Woodcraft. Thomas specialised in things like ironmongery and selling DIY goods and supplies, in addition to fitted kitchens. Woodcraft remained open for over a decade, indicating Thomas was definitely doing something right. But during those years, he was also accused of some strange behaviour. At the age of 20, Thomas had become an assistant Boy Scout leader for the 4th and 6th Sterling Troop. He appeared very keen and willing and did not present any problems during regular checkups. Thomas did, however, once try to take some boys on his boat in Loch Lomond, even though his boat had insufficient life jackets, and Thomas himself had inadequate knowledge of the waters. Nevertheless, in the autumn of 1973, Thomas was seconded to be the leader of the 24th Stirlingshire Troop, which was being revived. Shortly after, several complaints about Thomas's leadership followed. These complaints included Thomas forcing boys to sleep overnight in his company in a van during hillwalking expeditions in freezing weather at Aviemore. The first time something like this had happened, Thomas claimed they were supposed to spend a night in a room he had booked. But there had been a double booking issue, but when the same thing happened again, it was discovered that no bookings had ever been made by Thomas Hamilton. Following that revelation, the county commissioner and the district commissioner agreed it would be best for Thomas to resign. Commissioner Fairgrieve was the one speaking with Thomas after the decision, and he later said that Thomas did not seem like a particularly stable person. He said, I formed the impression that he had a persecution complex, that he had delusions of grandeur, and I felt his actions were almost paranoia. Thomas was then informed that his warrant was being withdrawn due to his lack of leadership qualities. To put it mildly, Thomas was not happy with the decision. When the Commissioner wrote to him, asking Thomas to return his warrant book, he failed to do so for some months. In Thomas's head, he had done nothing wrong, and he was willing to fight to keep his position. Meanwhile, Commissioner Fairfrive wrote the following letter, dated 29th of June, 1974 to the Scottish Scout Headquarters to explain why Thomas Hamilton would not be a member of the Scout movement any longer. Quote, While unable to give concrete evidence against this man, I feel that too many incidents relate to him, such that I am far from happy about his having any association with Scouts. He has displayed irresponsible acts on outdoor activities by taking young favourite scouts for weekends during the winter and sleeping in his van. The excuse for these outings being hill-walking expeditions. The lack of precautions for such outdoor activities displays either irresponsibility or an ulterior motive for sleeping with the boys. His personality displays evidence of a persecution complex, coupled with rather grandiose delusions of his own abilities. As a doctor, and with my clinical acumen only, I am suspicious of his moral intentions towards boys. The Commissioner also informed the Scout Headquarters about Thomas's immaturity and irresponsibility, Resulting in him being entered onto the quote blacklist. It was later found out that Thomas had written a letter dated the twenty eighth of April nineteen seventy-four to the commissioner in which he resigned as scout leader of the twenty fourth Stirlingshire Troop. The Commissioner had said that he had never seen such a letter and there was no record of it on the scout files. The only logical explanation was that Thomas wrote the letter after he was told about the withdrawal of his warrant. He had simply added the wrong date to create a false impression that he had made the decision to resign. By 1977, Thomas had made several attempts to return to scouting, including an attempt to become Scout Leader in Clackmaneshire, which failed due to his name being on the blacklist. Thomas then requested the Scout Association to hold a committee of inquiry into his complaint that he had been victimised, but the request was denied. Thomas continued to complain, sending letters here and there and offering his services as a scout leader to other commissioners. But nothing worked. Thomas felt like the scouts had ruined his reputation. But that did not stop him from setting up and running his own boys' clubs. It's not clear when exactly Thomas began running these clubs, but in the late 1970s, He led one called Dunblane Rovers in the Duckburn Centre in Dunblane. He also ran a Rovers group in Bannockburn. Altogether from 1981 until 1996, Thomas organised and operated 15 boys clubs for various periods on school premises in Central, Lothian, Fife and Strathclyde regions. Thomas was very active in seeking children to participate. He would send leaflets to houses and primary schools in the area, aiming to reach boys between ages 7 and 11. The club activities included such things as different games and sports, including football and gymnastics. The boys were charged between 30 pence and £1.50 per attendance. And at first, the clubs were extremely popular, making Thomas a modest income. But as time began to pass, the numbers dropped drastically, typically to less than a dozen boys. Thomas explained this as children's lack of patience and determination. But the real reason for decreasing the number of participants was Thomas himself. Thomas claimed he had noble purposes for running the clubs, like keeping the boys off the streets and helping them stay in shape. However, witnesses described Thomas as almost overly domineering, creating an almost military-like environment. Some of the adults who saw Thomas with the boys felt like he was getting something from dominating the children, and it made the witnesses feel very uneasy. On top of that, Thomas appeared to be oddly interested in individual boys. He clearly had favourites. Sometimes, Thomas even pressured the boys who had been at his clubs once to pressure their parents to permit them to attend one of his summer camps. The parents of the children also found it weird how eager Thomas was to pick up their boys from home and to try to learn private things from their family background. One thing that particularly made some of the adults hair stand up on the back of their neck was the ill-fitting swimming trunks Thomas demanded the boys to use for gymnastics and his habit of taking photos of the children while they wore those specific trunks. Thomas never asked for permission from the boys' parents to film them, but as soon as someone found out what he was doing, he explained it was totally normal to take photographs for training and advertising purposes.
0: to find out if it's right for you.
1: While there was no evidence of Thomas doing something terrible to these children, it was noted that the boys did not really seem to enjoy their time at the clubs. And Thomas himself gave a weird feeling to every parent or other adult he met. If parents then felt too uncomfortable and withdrew their child from the club, Thomas would send them long and repeated letters saying the rumours of him were not true. Some of these letters Thomas hand-delivered during the night. It is not really surprising that Thomas Hamilton eventually became known as Mr. Creepy, and several complaints were filed against him by the parents. Later, after the events at Dunblane Primary School had taken place, the inquiry heard about two incidents, during which Thomas had acted inappropriately towards the young boys. Firstly, a 12-year-old boy who had attended Dunblane Rovers at the Duckburn Centre in 1979 or 1980, said he had sat next to Thomas when he suddenly began to rub the inside of his leg. According to the witness's later testimony, Thomas had then asked him why he wanted to be one of his boys and join the club. The boy eventually told about the incident to his father, but went back to the club the following week. Thomas just refused to let the boy in because, quote, he was not mature enough. The second incident was more severe in nature, but in the public inquiry into the shooting, it was noted this particular witness was unwilling to be identified, only providing this statement in written form and had been convicted of a serious crime of dishonesty in the past. There was also no other evidence to support this person's claims which included Thomas Hamilton touching the 12-year-old's private parts inside the cabin of his boat with his erect penis out of his pants. There may be some truth in this statement but the police were unable to confirm it. But whether or not this particular incident actually happened or not, the results were the same. Rumours of Thomas Hamilton's disturbing behaviour circulated, and fewer and fewer boys attended his clubs. But still, Thomas felt hesitant to stop the clubs altogether. He thought he would just make people believe the rumours of him were true by doing so. In September 1995, Thomas had to face reality. Three clubs had already ended earlier that year, and now, just one boy attended the Kalander Club. Most of his operation was dying. Thomas had to come up with something else so he applied for the use of the Dunblane High School for a summer training course in 1996. In addition, even though the boys' clubs had required Thomas's full attention until this point, and he had not been active with his other hobbies, he now began to find his interest in firearms again. Records showed that Thomas had not bought ammunition from the 22nd of October 1987 until September 1995. But from that point forward, he was actively shooting again, and purchased a total of 1,700 rounds of 9mm and 500 rounds of .357 ammunition between the 22nd of September 1995 and the 27th of February 1996. Thomas had also purchased a 9mm Browning pistol and a .357 Smith & Wesson revolver. Thomas's newfound interest in firearms didn't go unnoticed, He was often seen at the Whitestone Range, used by the Sterling Rifle and Pistol Club. The president of the club, Mr G. F. Smith, noted Thomas was a reasonably good shooter, even though he found it a little weird that he fired all the time very rapidly. Thomas's cousin, Alexis Fawcett, later recalled how beloved the firearms had been for him. Saying, quote, He talks about guns as though they were babies. The inquiry into the shooting pieced together at least six months before the massacre of Dunblane Primary School to see what was going on in Thomas's head during that time. Firstly, Thomas felt like the rumors about him were the reason why he eventually lost his woodcraft shop not seeing anything wrong with his own behaviour. He was also constantly, desperately trying to recruit boys into his clubs, often lying about the activities, his own qualifications, the number of helpers, and the charges. Thomas then abused parents who withdrew their sons, he appeared extremely intolerant of those who questioned the way he ran the clubs and camps. In addition, Thomas had never let go of his grievance against the scouts and the police, because they, according to Thomas, were biased in favour of the Brotherhood of Masons. One thing that the investigators discovered was the fact that Thomas Hamilton didn't form any close relationships with an adult of either sex during his lifetime. Agnes, however, did say her son had had one girlfriend, but it was a very long time ago. According to Mr F. B. Cullen, who assisted Thomas in his shop, He was always nervous among adults, and very uncomfortable amongst women in particular. While there was no concrete evidence suggesting Thomas was interested in young boys in a sexual way, some of his actions did point in that direction. When he started to see a substantial decline in his clubs in 1995, Thomas likely started to feel like the most unimportant person. The purpose in his life was taken away. It says a lot that around this time, Thomas issued a large number of letters to parents in Dunblane in order to deal with the false and misleading gossip about him. He was desperate. As Thomas then applied for the use of Dunblane High School for a summer training course in 1996, it indicated he was still very much actively continuing his club activities. At the same time, Thomas was also becoming much more active as a shooter. Mr. J.O. Gillespie who was a reasonably frequent visitor to the Hamilton residence, later told the authorities about one incident in February 1996. According to him, Thomas had his 9mm pistol in his hand that day when he asked if Gillespie had any other children he would allow to attend his club. When Gillespie said no, Thomas pointed the pistol at him and pulled the trigger. Nothing was in the chamber, but Gillespie's heart likely stopped for a moment. He did not report the incident to the police, as he was sure Thomas would just deny everything, and nothing would come of it. But from that moment, Gillespie stopped visiting, and felt that Thomas Hamilton was a dangerous man. Apparently, one gun club had also refused to let Thomas join, due to two members who knew him, saying the club should have nothing to do with him. Then, on the 1st of March 1996, a parent of an 11-year-old boy filed a complaint against Thomas, saying he appeared to be taking an exceptional interest in her son and one of his friends and had shown the boys a gun before offering to take the boys' shooting. There was supposed to be a social worker visit, but the events, less than two weeks later, intervened before any further steps could be taken. One more thing that the investigators noted was Thomas's poor financial situation. He had nothing but debt and his application for a further loan in 1996 had been refused. Some witnesses later stated Thomas had appeared very subdued and depressed. Thomas had said to a photographer, Mr. RPC Alston, that he was shooting more and more because it took his mind off his problems. On the evening of the 12th of March, Thomas spoke with Mr. D. MacDonald on the phone, saying he was lonely and it was not good to be alone. The following morning, at about 8.15am on the 13th of March, 1996, Thomas Hamilton was seen by a neighbour scraping ice off a white van outside his home at 7 Kent Road, Stirling The two shared a conversation without anything seeming out of the ordinary Some time later Thomas got in his van and drove off in the direction of Dunblane He parked beside a telegraph pole in the lower car park of Dunblane Primary School at around 9:30 a.m. Until this point, there had not been anything strange in Thomas Hamilton's behavior. It had been almost like any other Wednesday morning. But what Thomas did next was far from ordinary. He took out a pair of pliers and cut the telephone wires at the foot of the telegraph pole. This did not affect the school, but a number of adjoining houses. Thomas then made his way across the car park towards the school building, carrying 743 cartridges of ammunition, two 9mm Browning HP pistols and two Smith & Wesson M19 .357 Magnum revolvers. Before gaining access through the northwest side door, avoiding the people near the main entrance at the time. Altogether, the school had six entrances and two doors controlled by push bars for emergency exits. The door Thomas used was the closest entrance to the gym where the children were just about to start their PE class. Nobody but Thomas Hamilton himself knows why he entered Dunblane Primary School that day and killed over a dozen young, innocent children. But even not knowing the true motives behind the massacre, the people of Dunblane knew something had to be done so a similar nightmare could never occur again. The Cullen inquiry into the massacre recommended changes in school security and that the government introduce tighter controls on handgun ownership. Even an outright ban on private ownership was put on the table, but the Home Affairs Select Committee stated that a handgun ban would not be appropriate. Some of the parents of the victims at Dunblane and the Hungerford Massacre supported a group called Gun Control Network that was founded after the shooting. Campaigns to ban private gun ownership quickly gained 705,000 signatures. Eventually, in response to the public debate, the then current conservative government of John Major introduced the Firearms Amendment Act 1997. This meant a ban for all cartridge ammunition handguns except .22 calibre single-shot weapons in England, Scotland and Wales. The .22 calibre handguns were also soon banned by the Labour government of Prime Minister Tony Blair, who introduced the Fireman's Amendment No. 2 Act 1997. And what was the result? Since the day Thomas Hamilton walked into Dunblane Primary School and slaughtered 16 children and one teacher... There has not been a single school shooting in the United Kingdom. The argument often made by the gun lobby in the United States says that banning guns is not the answer because then they should ban things like cricket bats too because both can be dangerous when misused. And yet, in many countries... Gun bans have stopped school shootings and even mass shootings altogether. And nobody has ever committed mass murder with a cricket bat. While the town still bleeds from the anger and grief caused by Hamilton's actions that day 26 years ago, the innocent victims, who never made it home that day, will always be remembered. Gwen Mayer, age 45. Abigail McLennan, age 5. Victoria Clysdale, age 5. Sophie North, age 5. Ross Irvine, age 5. Mary Macbeth, age 5 Melissa Curry, age 5 Megan Turner, age 5 Kevin Hassel, age 5 John Patry, age 5 Joanna Ross, age 5 Hannah Scott, age 5 Emma Crozier, age 5, Emily Morton, age 5, David Kerr, age 5, Charlotte Dunn, age 5, Brett McKinnon, age 6, Your Beautiful Souls Will Never Be Forgotten. Thank you for listening to this week's episode and thank you for your kind messages of support, feedback, positive reviews, and of course, your patience. I really do appreciate it and I love reading what you have to say. For transcripts, photos, credits, and resources relating to today's episode, please visit www.truecrimebritain.com. If you'd like to access things like ad-free, early release, and bonus episodes, I'd love you to consider supporting the show by joining me on Patreon, where you could get access to all that and even more rewards from just £1 a month. You can join now by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Britain or see the episode description. Don't forget, you can also like, follow, and or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a future episode. There are some big cases coming up and I wouldn't want you to miss out. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube for regular case updates. Just search for True Crime Britain. If you're already supporting me on Patreon, you can find next week's episode already there waiting for you. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week and please stay safe.
0: If you are affected by any of the content featured in today's episode, please see the show notes or visit www.truecrimebritain.com where you can find links to further support. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.